electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, who is next after a big win? Has the UAW set its sights on Tesla? Oil boomerang prices now below where they were before the Israel-Hamas war, but a new report should have everyone concerned. Apple, after dark. It's scary fast product event kicking off just an hour from now. We've got a preview. Return to office tensions flaring. Even at the New York Times, billionaire Don Peebles here with reaction. Secret text reveal what Sam Bankman-Fried really thought about some of his crypto customers. Plus, out of alignment, you won't believe how much one CEO just made by getting really lucky. And it is Make It Mondays. You're going to meet the entrepreneur who turned $100,000 into $200 million in sales from Soda Pop. Sort of. All that and much more across the hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon at West. I am Brian Sullivan. We've got a huge Monday hour ahead, but first up tonight, a big day for your money. All the stock indexes came roaring out of the gate to start the week. The S&P 500 rose enough to get out of a technical correction. The big winner, though, believe it or not, it was the Dow rising more than 500 points. And that, my friends, is the best day for the Dow in five months. But before you get too excited, some facts to consider. The move means the Dow is basically flat since the beginning of the Israel-Hamas war. That was here on October 7th, and you could see the market went up a little bit before going down, and then it ended up where it was today. Now, going back a little bit further, let's just say the the Dow summer was kind of like a mullet. It was up in the front, and then it was down in the back, but the entire move has us where we started going back to Memorial Day. So would you have made money if you invested in the Dow at the beginning of the year? No. The Dow, this is a year-to-date chart, also almost exactly flat for the year. But if that is not all, and that is not enough, and we're going to switch to red for this one. If you have not been paying attention, it has not been a great few years for the Dow either. In fact, this is a chart going back to March 15th, 2021. What about two and a half months? Up and down. If you were trading the market, you might have made some money, right? Some big moves here in the middle of 2022, et cetera. But the reality is, if you go back two and a half years to March 15th, 2021, you are pretty much exactly flat. Now, you got dividends, sure, but inflation, that's going to eat the dividend payout. So the net result is, if you had invested in the Dow, we're going to do 0.0. It's like D-Day's grade point average. 0.00 if you had invested in the Dow or the Dow ETF going back to March 15th, 2021. Don't go after the messenger. And hey, let's remember this. It is not where we've been, but where we are going and where the Dow goes from here. Still pretty stunning with all the moves, everything that's happened. 
$10 trillion in debt added over the last three years, and the Dow is exactly flat. All right, we're going to get more on the markets all week long. But right now, let us switch gears to the big news out of Detroit. The more than month-long UAW strike nearly over after GM reaching a tentative deal with the union today. The news comes after Chrysler parent Stellantis struck its own deal over the weekend. Phil LeBeau literally working seven days a week for us the last month. We appreciate it following the developments. Uh, Phil, I mean, hard not to see how the UAW did better than many probably expected. I think they did do better than many expected, Brian. Most people said, look, you get a 20% raise. You get some of what you're asking for. I don't think you get cost of living adjustments. Be happy with that. Oh, they got far more than that. 25% wage increases over the next five and a half years, or four and a half years, excuse me. 33% when you factor in cost of living adjustments. Higher, much higher starting pay and temp worker pay and greater retiree benefits. So what happens now for the big three automakers? Remember, they had nine plants that in some were shut down for the last six weeks, some only for a couple of days. What happens with those plants? They will gradually resume production. The workers have gone back to work, and some are really starting production up. Others, it's going to take a little bit longer. But as they do that, the question now becomes, what happens with the workers? When do they ratify this? They're still getting their contracts spelled out to them. Ford got all the details last night. Stellantis employees and GM employees will find all the details out this week. And it raises the question, the number of workers who will be voting on this, you're looking at about 150,000. Is it possible that those members say, we don't like it, we want more? Sure, Mack Truck had a temporary agreement and then it got shot down by the rank and file. That is possible, but most believe that it will get approved. Here is Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, talking about last night, it's not just these three contracts that he's been focused on. It's about doing more with the UAW in the future. One of our biggest goals coming out of this historic contract victory is to organize like we've never organized before. When we return to the bargaining table in 2028, it won't just be with the big three, but with the big five or big six. He's talking about potentially organizing maybe Toyota, maybe Honda, maybe Nissan plants here in the U.S., maybe Tesla. Historically, they have struggled. The UAW has struggled to organize non-union auto plants here in the United States, Brian. But as you take a look at shares of GM, Ford, and Stellantis, keep in mind that a lot of the workers who are at these non-union plants, they're going to look at these contracts and they're going to say, 25% raise. That's not bad. That's not bad. Maybe they'll rethink the idea of joining a union. That is the goal of the UAW. It, it seems the odds would be very small that the rank and file would turn this down, correct? I mean, this is, we, we've been talking about everything that they've yes. gotten. Maybe they didn't get every everything, but this has got to be a win, and it seems like it should well, be a shoe-in yeah. vote. Yes. Yes. I think that they will, they will approve this. Now, having said that, you'll be surprised, Brian. I, I wouldn't be surprised you get 35 40% who will say no. Um, you know, and nothing is ever a slam dunk, but I think that it does get approved. Yeah, and uh, I would say that, that Fain would have a chance of becoming the next governor of Michigan, but I guess he's, he's from Indiana, so that's not the case, but still riding yes, that's high. That's true. <laughs> riding high, Phil. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, so you heard coming off that big win, the UAW saying in four years, the next contract negotiation won't just be with the big three, but with the, quote, 
Big Five or Six, meaning, to Phil's point, the UAW may be looking to unionize companies like Toyota, Honda, Tesla, or others who manufacture here. Could that happen? Let's talk more about that and the big win for the UAW with our A-list panel. Former Acting Labor Secretary Seth Harris, former Council of Economic Advisors, Acting Chair Tyler Goodspeed. Seth, first to you, I got to imagine this is a the big win for the UAW and politically the president who, who stopped by the, the picket line that one day we were there. Uh, probably a big win for him as well. It's a huge win for the UAW. It's a huge win for organized labor, building on a series of other wins at the bargaining table that they've seen not only this year, but in the last three years. Teamsters, UPS, Writers Guild, John Deere, coalition of Kaiser Permanente unions. There's been a lot of victory and a lot of success at the bargaining table for the labor movement. President Biden urged them on. He went to the picket line, as you mentioned, at, and put his arm around a striker and said, you deserve more. So he threw in with the workers and the workers won this one. So I think he's probably feeling really good about it. Yeah. And you wonder, Tyler, you know, you, you heard the UAW say it. We're not speculating. They said the big five or six. And this has got to embolden labor all across America, if not other parts of North America and the world. And by the way, can you can you blame them? I know a lot of people push back on unionized labor, but at the same time, these people literally are dealing with prices and inflation that while the rate is coming down, they're paying a lot more for everything than they did a couple of years ago. Right. And one might even say that the rate was coming down. But in August and September, if you look at the core underlying measures of inflation, those actually ticked back up. And that's why I think this was a win not only for President Biden, but for President Trump, who also threw his lot in with workers and, and supported workers, went went to the, the, the picket lines. And yeah, for a long time, a lot of economists thought that strikes were accidents. They were the result of miscalculations because they can be very costly for both sides. But I'm reminded of a 1984 book, What Do Unions Do?, that was written by a dear mentor of mine, Harvard, the late Harvard labor economist Jim Medoff, who said that actually strike action is more common when inflation is relatively high and strike action is more common when unemployment is relatively low. And so here we have multi-decade decade highs in inflation. We have a labor market that probably has not been this tight since 19 since the right. late 1960s. And I think that is why we are we are seeing a lot of collective Tyler, bargaining. that 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 shouldn't that's hard to interrupt. That shouldn't surprise anybody. Right. You got to strike literally <laughs> and pun intended, I guess. When the iron is hot, when your demand, demand for your services is high, when costs are out of control for housing and medical care and everything else, that's when I would imagine you're going to do it. And even if inflation does come down in the next year, I would imagine other unions and other people at stores, Starbucks, wherever it may be, are thinking now is the time, Tyler. Yes, because if you look at whether you're looking at quit rates, job opening rates, the unemployment rate, any measure of labor market slack. And this is showing a very tight labor market. And that is the time at which to negotiate if you are labor. And I would add to that in addition that while wages have started to go up, they still have not closed the gap to where prices have gone over the past two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So in the aggregate, real wages are wow. still not only below where they were had they continued that pre-pandemic trend, they are below where they were uh, in 2020. There is, Seth, still this kind of big overhanging question, which is the transition to more battery electric vehicles. Many of these battery plants that are going up in Michigan and elsewhere are co-owned by companies overseas. Some of them 
in China. Those workers mostly not unionized. How do we resolve the stickiness of that situation, given that companies that are based in Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou are represented? Right. The UAW is going to have to battle that out with the companies. They've told us that they have a deal with General Motors with respect to the joint ventures and that they will represent the workers in those joint ventures. They also have already organized uh, one of the joint venture uh, plants on Ultium Cells. They'll represent the Ford wholly owned uh, battery plant. So they're making progress, but they're going to still have to battle that out. It's not one of the issues that was addressed in these negotiations. And I just have to I have to respond to one thing that Tyler said. President Trump didn't go to the picket line. President Trump went to a non-union auto manufacturing parts facility and spoke to a bunch of non-union workers and non-auto workers. Very different from what President Biden did. Although, although I said I agreed. And I think he actually spoke to retirees, not actual workers. Uh, but President Biden, and I was there, so I, I saw it with my own two eyes, was was on the picket line for about 10 minutes. But you got to get the photo op, right? And you think even just that brief visit mattered? Oh, absolutely. It mattered. It bucked up the uh, members of the UAW. It sent a signal to workers around the country that if they go out on strike, their president stands behind them. He is vigorously advocating for workers to fight for themselves, to raise their wages. And he has helped to engineer an economy that's put a lot of power in their hands, put a lot of money yeah. in their pockets and help them to be able to bargain for better outcomes for themselves. Yeah. And I will say this, uh, Seth and Tyler, great discussion. We spent a lot. We spent about 10 hours there, met a lot of great people. Whatever people think of it, it's a big win for them. And I'm happy for them and their families. Seth and Tyler, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Listen. We know costs are higher everywhere. All right. We showed you the overall markets at the top of the show, but inside the S&P, the big winner of the day was hard drive maker Western Digital up 7%. But oof, on semiconductor, down almost 22%, wiping out one-fifth of investor value. That stock went off. All right. Let's also take a look at futures, see how things are shaping up for tomorrow morning. And it is a mixed trade. Really nothing happening right now. All right, up next, back to 75 or... Soaring to 125. And what's happening in the Middle East determines what is next for oil. Plus, could you face the risk of electricity blackouts this winter or higher prices? You could, and it may be all because of the Federal Reserve. We'll explain coming up. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
All right, welcome back. Today's RBI is about the Federal Reserve. Higher borrowing costs and your heat and light at home. Yep, interest rates and energy together. Because believe it or not, they are connected. Here's how. Large-scale power projects like offshore wind, nuclear, solar farms, and more are extremely expensive. The only nuclear plant right now being built in America is in Georgia. It is now scheduled to cost over $30 billion. That is more than double the original estimate. While many numbers aren't made public, some of the new offshore wind farms being proposed are thought to cost well over a billion or more dollars. Natural gas plants, they're also well into the billions of dollars. The point is this. Big energy is big time expensive. And in order to build out these new projects, developers almost always have to borrow the money to do it. And when interest rates and borrowing costs were low, it wasn't a real concern. But now it's a totally different story. Higher rates are either crushing, ending many new projects or threatening to. And the market has taken notice. Let's show you. Look at two of the biggest new energy ETFs. One is solar, one is wind. First off, this is more well-known. This is the TAN, the Invesco Solar ETF. This is a three-year chart. Right about here, March 17, 2022, the Federal Reserve began raising rates. The 10-year, of course, because the bond market is always ahead of the Fed, it started moving rates up 468% since three years ago. And guess what? That solar ETF, despite all the hype, down 40%. Now to wind, one of the biggest wind energy-focused ETFs. Again, this one called the the fan. Are you starting the tan and the fan? Here you go. Again, three-year chart. Fed starts raising rates about here. You know that. Guess what? The fan, by the way, not very big, couple hundred million dollar market cap, down 25%. Also, it's not just ETFs. It's some companies and not just here, overseas companies as well. Because remember, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, they're also raising rates. It's not just our Fed. In fact, a few days ago, you might have heard about this. Germany's biggest wind energy provider, and in fact, one of their formerly biggest companies at all, effectively had to ask the German government for a bailout. It's not just rates. They got other issues here. A lot of wind turbines were breaking. They simply weren't working. This is the German stock down 29%. This is a one-year chart, by the way, and you can see that we're up 22% on the 10-year, while this company, Siemens Energy, again, other issues besides just rates, down 29%. I could fill this up for the next half hour, but I'm not going to. Here's the bottom line why you should care. The federal government has said that over 15 gigawatts of coal and natural gas power production are expected to be shut down or shut off this year. What does that mean? Well, 15 gigawatts, enough power to provide light and heat to probably about 7 to 8 million average size homes or about the entire population of Massachusetts. You don't have to be an energy whiz to understand that if we take 15 gigawatts of power offline and higher borrowing costs, stop putting new projects online, bunch off, not much on, we may end up powerless, literally. Oh, And the projects that are going forward are often now going forward only if the developers are granted higher electricity costs, meaning these get built. And we need them, by the way. Your bill is going to go up, but at least you'll have enough power. Hopefully random and interesting and maybe important because electricity is kind of a thing. All right, from electricity to oil, and here's another potential shock. The World Bank warning that oil could skyrocket to $150 a barrel if the Israel-Hamas war intensifies to other areas of the Middle East. The good news, 
Oil actually fell today, and the price about the same or even maybe a little below before the October 7th attacks. Something else happened today which did not get the attention it deserved. Saudi Defense Minister Khalid bin Salman, brother to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, met with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan at the White House. They discussed our defense partnership and the current situation in Gaza. But clearly, energy had to have been a major underlying theme as well between the two nations. Let's talk about it with RBC Capital Markets, Global Head of Commodity Strategy, CNBC contributor, and someone who actually just got back from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Halima Croft. The White House, Halima, we don't know everything they talked about. Put out a short note saying we're talking about humanitarian aid to Gaza. We're talking about defense. I've got to imagine, though, inside the White House, between these two nations, there had to have been conversations about energy. I mean, I'm certainly assuming there were conversations about energy, but Brian, the White House is so concerned about this conflict spreading beyond Gaza. They are looking to Saudi Arabia to potentially help mediate. They're also looking to Saudi Arabia to potentially help rebuild Gaza in a post-Hamas Gaza future. They're also looking potentially for help with an Arab peacekeeping force. So I do think a central part of the conversation with Prince Khalid was on the issue of can you get Gulf nations mobilized around providing some type of potential off-ramp, though I think it's going to be incredibly challenging given the events that are taking place right now in the region. Yeah, but a lot of other stuff is going on in the last 24 to 48 hours. In fact, yeah. I've, in, in the last 24 hours, Yemeni rebels, the Houthi rebels, reportedly killed four Saudi soldiers with kind of a surprise mm-hmm. attack there, while the U.S. was sending missiles into parts of Syria, allegedly at Iranian backed targets. And when I hear these things and then I read this IEA report, Halima, I am a little bit surprised that the price of a barrel of crude oil is not moving higher right now. I think the market is incredibly sanguine about the risks in the Middle East. I mean, there are serious risks of escalation. I mean, we have two U.S. carriers have been deployed to the region. Thousands of more Marines are there. We do have attacks cross-border with Hezbollah firing into Israel. It has not been a full-scale Hezbollah involvement before, but that could come depending on the Israeli ground operation in Gaza. We are watching what's happening, as you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. with the Houthis, with these attacks that we're seeing, you know, potentially involving Saudi Arabia, but also potentially firing on Israel. And so it is a very combustible situation And the market, I think, is taking it in stride. I think maybe there's a sense that with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they were expecting bigger outages. Many got burned anticipating Mm -hmm. those outages. And now they're waiting to see a disruption or a spread before they actually get into the market. Yeah. But at least to your point, oil market for now, for now, thankfully, has been sanguine in a scary time. Halima Croft, RBC, always appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, up next, we're switching gears. Apple going prime time. It's first evening product event ever, he said, about to get underway. We've got a special preview, and later, it is a stock down 75% from its peak. So how did the CEO recently get a $27 million payday? Herb Greenberg is here to tell you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, the Treasury giving a new estimate on how much it is going to have to borrow for the final three months of this year. That number, $776 billion for three months. That's actually down from last quarter when we borrowed $1.01 trillion. All that new debt fueling the surge in borrowing costs. Meantime, related to all this, some recent comments from hedge fund legend Stan Druckenmiller about Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen getting some attention tonight. The billionaire hedge fund giant called her out for not issuing more long-dated bonds when rates were near zero. Druckenmiller t- saying at the Robinhood Investors Conference last week, quote, I literally think if you go back to Alexander Hamilton, it was the biggest blunder in the history of the Treasury. I have no idea why she has not been called out on this. She has no right to still be in that job. End quote. Stanley Druckenmiller to Janet Yellen, because just like your mortgage, most of you probably refied. The U.S. government did not. And now you and me, everybody in this room is going to have to pay up. All right, next up, another big story that will play out tomorrow. We're about a half an hour away from what Apple's calling a scary fast product event. How big of a splash, if at all, could it make tonight? Steve Kovac has the details on what we might expect. And like everything, Steve, it's crowded in Apple mystery. That's right. Yeah, well, Apple's getting spooky tonight. 8 p.m. Eastern hosting a virtual event. They're calling it Scary Fast. Get it? Because it's almost Halloween. We're expecting to it to unveil a new Mac lineup for the holidays. And knowing those Apple execs, more than a few Halloween jokes and puns. But the computers will be the same. That's the Mac, iMac desktop and MacBook Pro laptop. The real story is going to be the reveal of Apple's newest processor for those computers. They're going to call it the M3. It's the third version of the chip Apple started making itself a few years ago because Intel's chips were no longer cutting it. Expect to see a lot of what us nerds call speeds and feeds or showing how the performance of the new chip stacks up to the competition. And that competition is going to get a lot tougher. Qualcomm, now that's the company best known for making smartphone chips, just unveiled its first PC processor last week. And it says that chip is faster than Apple's. Of course, that might change after tonight. And NVIDIA is reportedly working on its own PC chips as well. All three companies are using chip designs from ARM Holdings, which just had its public debut this fall. Could be on the cusp of a new era in PCs, Brian, that are much more efficient than what Intel already offers, Brian. There you go. Steve Kovac, good luck tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. All right. Will tonight's B event be, be enough to excite investors? Let's take it to your next guest. Joining us now is Deepwater Asset Management Managing Partner Gene Munster. Gene, the Mac, it's a great computer. Does it matter at all to Apple's stock price? Brian, it, it does in the sense that when you're a $430 billion company, you need every product to kind of build. They need signals to and a baseball analogy to create runs, and the Mac has a potential to be that. 
It's 10% of overall sales. It has been up and down the last couple of years. It was up 23% in 2021. Before that, in the five years before that, it was basically up 2% on average. So it just rocketed. And this year, fiscal uh, 23, it's going to be down almost 30%. And so does it matter to investors? If you have 10% of your business that's down 30%, investors want to see that right size. I think what they're going to do tonight is going to be a huge step in that direction. For the December quarter, I expect it to be up, call it 5 to 7%. So they care because this has been, uh, been a, a dive downward in terms of revenue uh, growth over the last uh, few quarters. Yeah. Gene, switching gears, talking about the phone, which certainly does matter to Apple investors. Are they, do they have a China problem, given that apparently China with this new Huawei phone, a lot of people in China, no surprise, are choosing the hometown favorite? I think, uh, yes, the simple answer is Apple does have a, a China problem. I think when it comes to the phone, uh, my sense is it's going to be soft in China for the September quarter. I think that'll be offset by strength in the U.S., but China is uh, seeing some more competition. Tim Cook, of course, had that surprise visit on October 17th to China. He did it to probably prop up the uh, the brand, which uh, it would be a result of kind of softness. And then, of course, uh, the the China the China equation is goes beyond just demand. There's, of course, making the government's making it more difficult, mm-hmm. Chinese government to build products in China for Apple. Yeah, if you're a Chinese consumer, what do you want to do? You want to walk around with a U.S. product, the iPhone, or walk around with a Huawei product made by your own country? Maybe not a decision to make. Gene Munster, thank you. All right, still ahead, get the crocodile tears ready because it was a rough day on the stand for Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried. We'll go to the courthouse where it's all been going down next. Welcome back. Sam Bankman-Fried was grilled by prosecutors today. It's his second day on the stand in front of the jury in his criminal fraud trial. Kate Rooney was in the room. Kate, tough line of questioning as we understand it for the prosecution. How did Bankman-Fried's answers hold up? Well, Brian, so Bankman-Fried, Sam Bankman-Fried seemed aggravated at times today. He was dodging questions or just not answering them directly. He was splitting hairs really over the phrasing of certain questions. We heard a lot of I don't recall. He was also scolded by the judge who at one point said, look, can you just answer the question? The government attorneys took direct aim at Bankman-Fried's credibility today. The prosecution laid out inconsistencies, just times when the crypto founder was saying one thing in public, but something completely different behind closed, to- behind closed doors. Rather, Attorneys relied on the many media interviews that he gave. They pointed to one CNBC conversation I had with Bankman-Fried in which he told me there were no conflicts of interest between his hedge fund and his crypto exchange. They pulled up Bloomberg articles, the Financial Times. There was even a moment when the prosecution walked up to the stand. They gave him a copy of a book that was recently written about the crypto collapse. They had him flipping to pages where he was quoted. In all of those instances, Brian, Bankman-Fried said he couldn't quite remember saying those things. Prosecution went through what he did say under oath when he testified in front of Congress. As well, there was a very cringeworthy moment today as well when he was asked directly about his private messages with a journalist where he said, we're not quoting this directly, Brian, but F regulators. That was after he had actually been lobbying in Washington, D.C. for crypto regulation. He also called some crypto traders, paraphrasing again, dumb mother effers. They introduced tweets today in which he assured customers 
right around when the bankruptcy was happening and that assets on FTX were fine. But then behind the scenes, government prosecutors showed using Google metadata that he, in fact, had seen financial documents unveiling a multi-billion dollar hole in his crypto company. The cross-examination continues tomorrow. The case could go to a jury, Brian, by the end of this week, but a lot more to come. Could you further, Thank I didn't you. quite get that part where you, the, I, could you translate that, that text a little bit, the dumb, what, what was that again? Oh, oh hold on, okay, yeah. don't do that, don't do that. But let's be clear. Not for TV. We let's be clear. This is Sam Bankman fried insulting his customers. A lot of our viewers, a lot of our listeners that may have traded with them, lost money with them, he's literally calling them dumb, you know, MFers in, in secret text messages. I mean, that does, it's like, that doesn't say a lot about Mr. Bankman Freed. Or maybe it does. He tried to clarify on, this, on the stand that he was talking about a subset of those customers, also insulting regulators. He had spent so much time in Washington, D.C., trying to shape some of the crypto regulation. They also talked about one of the reasons he was lobbying down there was to have them go after a competitor, Binance. That was FTX's biggest competitor at the time. So speaks to some of what he was doing behind the scenes and the differences between his public persona and what he was saying behind the scenes through some of these text messages and uh, other evidence that they showed today. Uh, if you have to clarify calling somebody that, good luck. Because if, I've had some people call me that. And I, I pretty much knew exactly what they were going for. Uh, <laughs> Kate Rooney, good stuff. Dancing around the edges there too, Kate. Appreciate it. All right. Now, to someone making a lot of money legally, but still getting very lucky to do it. It has to do with the line technology. They make the Invisalign braces. You see, Align Tech used to be a Wall Street darling. In 2017, it was actually the best performing stock in the S&P 500. It peaked in 2021 at 737 a share, but then began a nosedive post-pandemic. Today, Align Tech is at about $187, down 75% from its all-time high. But that drop did not stop the company CEO, Joe Hogan, from getting a massive payday, and it had a lot to do with luck. For more on this, bring in the guy that figured this out. That is the editor of Herb Greenberg on the street on Substack. Herb himself, also a CNBC contributor. And you hate to hear about anybody making money from the pandemic, right? Because that just seems gross. But that's the reality. That's what he just somehow timed in to the pandemic. Explain. Well, his board timed in. And I want to say something. Look, Align's a great company. They've done a great job. Joe Hogan, an exceptionally good CEO since he joined the company in 2015. But in 2018, the board decided to give him something called a CEO special equity grant. And by doing that, they basically said, if you can get the stock, which was then in the mid 300s or so before it went down to about 200 and change shortly after that, if you can get it to 500 uh, dollars a share and get this, the total shareholder return and the 80th percentile of the S&P 500, we're going to give these, you're going to get these big market stock units, these MSUs as they're called, and they're going to be worth, at the time they were given, about um, $27.6 million. Well, since then, the stock just started to fall, and it started to fall. And the company was starting to have issues, and I was in a short research firm, and we were writing about just the increased competition and challenges facing the company. And honestly, going into 2020, you know, two years in, it didn't seem like it was going to happen, that he was going to get this. But then the pandemic struck. And then everybody wanted to get their crooked teeth fixed so they could go on Zoom and look better. Uh, cosmetic surgery in general, all cosmetic things surely took off. So this stock just went through the roof. And by we, the time we hit June of 2021, 
he was well in the money and he got the stock. And then he was able to turn around and sell the stock. And he actually sold stock. I don't know if it was from the MSUs, but he certainly sold stock right away tied to the expiration of the units. Plus, when the stock was almost at its height, yeah. 700 but and I change, can't, I can't take sold, Herb, so. I can't wait for the tinfoil hats to come out on this one about the conspiracy theory people about the how because because the grant Here. number, the, the, the move in the stock would have had to have been so extreme as to be it probably would have been impossible. But for the pandemic. That was the lucky part of it. And that's the issue here, because you get these equity, these these equity incentives. And what this equity incentive did not have was a holding period, as some might have even two or three years where they would at least have to make sure the performance of the company matched up. And in fact, the company in 2000, a year after they did this or that year after they announced it, the big investors started balking, or at least the company said they had to explain this to big investors. And then they came out mm-hmm. and said, we will never do this again unless we get shareholder feedback before we do it. So no. they knew this wasn't right. And this is a story, by the way, I don't think they really wanted anyone to see or remember or anything because it was sort of tucked away. And I only thought about it when I saw that stock go below 200 last week. I thought, oh, wait a second. I remember that. And that's how we ended up. But you're the guy whenever I lose my keys, you're the guy I call because somehow you find everything. Herb Greenberg, really appreciate it. Thank you. Sure. All right. On deck, meet the new epicenter of the fight over returning to the office. And it just might be the New York Times billionaire real estate mogul Don Peebles. Join us with reaction and more next. All right, welcome back. Another day, another labor walkout, sort of. This time, the New York Times technology workers walked out for half the day because they say the company is trying to force workers back into the office. Employees have been in union contract negotiations with the company for more than a year. They say the New York Times is stalling on the deal and maybe here's the real kicker, hurting their ability to work from home. Maybe just the latest example in the return to office reckoning. According to Castle Systems data, 50% exactly of offices are occupied in an average of the 10 major metro areas. Some, like in Texas, much higher. San Francisco, New York, D.C., a little bit lower. We've been talking about it a lot. What does it mean for commercial real estate? Well, let's bring in billionaire real estate investor Don Peebles, founder, chair, and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. Don, it feels like the recession that has never come. People have been calling for it for two years. It hasn't happened. People are waiting for this commercial real estate reckoning. It has not happened. Will it? Yes, it will. Absolutely. By the way, think of the concept. People are resisting going back to work. Now, that's amazing. They don't want to go back to their offices. But the reality is it's already happening. The commercial real estate market is already suffering. You have major investors and owners giving back their office buildings to their lenders. It's been a quieter process but it will accelerate even more as time goes on. And so I think that we'll see a much greater uh, time of reckoning as we get into the first and second quarter of 2024. What will that look like? It'll look like, you. well, first of all, office building values are plummeting already. So you have, I'm in Los Angeles right now. So for example, here, office buildings have lost 60 to 70% of their values right now. Washington, D.C. has been decimated. Office buildings are selling by their lenders, by down 30 to 60%. And so what's going to, it's going to keep happening and it's going to look like 
a decline in values. And then some of these buildings will be ripe for conversions. Others will ultimately get demolished and redeveloped mm. to some greater use as time goes on. But uh, also adding to this problem are high interest rates as well. And so what you have is seasoned property owners, seasoned investors recognizing that they cannot recover their equity and the brain drain of dealing with these assets is no longer worth it. And they're giving them back to the lenders. That momentum is going to keep picking up. New York State's top, you probably saw this, done. New York State's top financial official, basically, a, a, you know, sort of a Fed official banker, worried about banks' exposure to commercial real estate and unrealized losses sitting on bank balance sheets that have not been realized yet. If the top New York State official is worried, because generally regulators tend to be slow, should we be? Well, yeah, I think if you're an owner of a regional bank um, or a large local bank that has a big portfolio of commercial real estate, they're going to have some problems and hopefully they've got strong reserves. What's happening right now is that the lenders don't want the properties back. And so they are giving the owners a chance to ride it out with the hopes of being able to get um, their dollars back. But in reality, what's going to happen at some point that the federal regulators are going to have them accelerate uh, taking back some of these assets. So far, they have been w- unwilling to do that. Yeah, and, and I, I, we really appreciate your candor, Don, because you're invested in the space and you, you might have something to lose out there, but you're willing to come on and, and tell it like it is. And that's why you probably are a billionaire and enjoy Los Angeles. I hope the weather is better there than here, Don. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, right. Brian. Coming up, it is not every day you turn $100,000 into $20 million in sales a month, but the entrepreneur behind one of the hottest drink brands in America is doing exactly that. We're going to introduce you to Alipop on Make It Monday. Next. All right, it is Make It Mondays because it's, it's Monday. And tonight we meet Ben Goodwin. He is the co-founder and CEO behind Gen Z's new favorite healthy soda brand, Olipop. He, along with his partner, David Lester, turned a $100,000 investment into a multi-million dollar brand in just five years. Take a look. I grew up drinking soda. It's one of the most ubiquitous American beverages of all time. So if you really wanted to create a health food product to really break through at mass scale, soda is the perfect vehicle. Ben and I first met at a coffee shop in Palo Alto, and I remember turning up and Ben had this bag of sodas with him. Blew my mind with his knowledge of the gut microbiome, probiotics, his passion for what he was doing. When we were first launching Olipop, there was really nothing like it on the market. In fact, most investors said to us, it was a stupid idea, a healthy soda. Nobody's gonna gonna be interested in that. Olipop is a new kind of soda. It tastes just like the soda we all grew up drinking, but it has nine grams of fiber. Uh, We've completed clinical research on the functionality of the product, and it only has two to five grams of sugar instead of 40 or more for a traditional soda. There's no preservatives, there's no artificial flavors, there's no artificial colors. So we are really doing our best to actually create something that's really healthy for the customer. We initially launched with three flavors in 40 stores in Northern California uh, back at the end of 2018. And you know, since then we've grown to 15 or so flavors and we're now approaching 30,000 stores nationwide. Our first year we did a million dollars in revenue, then it was nine. 
Then we exploded to 30, and now we're uh, looking at north of 200 million this year, which has been absolutely astounding. And in one of our largest national retail partners, Olipop is now a larger brand than Pepsi, Mountain Dew, Canada Dry, and our root beer is outselling A&W. We want to take this product well beyond a billion dollars. I think that the potential is there, um, but we also have the humility to know that's really difficult. So, you know, we're going to keep working the way that we have been and, and see where this exciting journey takes us now. And Ben Goodwin joins us now as I crack open a cherry vanilla. Ben, what is so OK? What is it? You're not a soda pop, apparently. What is Olipop? How are you different? Well, it actually is a new type of soda. Uh, but instead of the 40 grams of sugar you'd usually find uh, in your favorite soda, it's two to five grams per can with nine grams of fiber. So it's all of the nostalgia and the comfort, but with none of the health downside. Is it like jacked up with some of those artificial sweeteners? <laughs> no, there are no uh, artificial non-nutritive sweeteners in Olipop. We use stevia, real fruit juice, some cassava syrup, and that's it. How do you come up with the... I'm drinking... Uh, honestly, legit, cherry vanilla... It's very good. I've got an orange squeeze here. I've not tried this yet. I'm going to live test it on the air. And I, I'm always honest. How do you come up with these flavors? Because you got like banana cream. Yeah. I mean, I'm always tracking customer requests, right? So we do try to listen to our customers. And when they write us and tell us what they want, we do listen. I also have a memory bank of all the nostalgic flavors that I grew up with. And so I'm referencing those and trying to figure out what's going to surprise and delight the customer and what also is going to reference some flavor palette that I has had as a kid and that I think is going to work really well for our customers as well. I've also been a product developer for 18 years. and I actually uh, formulate in a yeah. lab that I built in my house. So that's fun. It's like a mad soda scientist effectively. And you beat out A&W apparently in root beer competition. The orange squeeze is good. It might be nice with like an adult beverage too, I'm kind of thinking. But how did you people, come up? How did you say just that. saying it. <laughs> It's belly up or buckle up. How'd you come up with the name? I, oh, Olipop. So it's not the world's friendliest. I mean, pop is pretty straightforward. Pop, yep. pop is soda. Like if you're in Minneapolis, right? everything's pop. 100%. Uh, Ollie is short for oligosaccharide. Oligosaccharides are a type, it's a family of prebiotics. Oh. And it's the family we actually use in the product. So you should have gone with uh, that. David Olivia I, Saccharide banana cream. Olivia I mean, that rolls pop. off the tongue, Ben. <laughs> yeah, no, I, we wouldn't. We were going to go there. I mean, we had a we had over seventy five names in a list. It's like, oh, we'll get sued okay. for that, and that's not original enough. And we landed here. I Con like it though. I think it works. Look, congratulations. We appreciate it. Uh, Cherry Vanilla is legit good. Ben, congrats on your success. Thank you. Thank right, you so much for having me. Oh, on. you're very welcome. Check out CNBCMakeIt.com. And finally, do you know what happened 11 years ago today in a galaxy really not very far away, just across the country? A blockbuster deal in Hollywood. Disney bought Lucasfilm for $4 billion. This was the moment it happened. There you go. They shook hands. Negotiation. Great deal, by the way. $4 billion, $6 billion in sales. Take that any day of the week and twice on Sunday. We're going to finish our orange cream Olipop here. We will see you tomorrow on Last Call. Go Lions.
NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people.